Hey, welcome to Skate Chats, everyone, where we play every Tony Hawk Pro Skater video game sequentially, and we talk about them. My name's Jam, and I'm here with my host, Chase. Welcome to Scape Chats episode 30. I'm Alan, and I'm here with the Freslin fiend, Magellan. <laughs> this week, we're going to be discussing season 3, episode 13, Scratch and Sniff, as well as episodes 14 and 15, the two-part episode, Infinite Possibilities. Scratch and Sniff was written by Lily Taylor, directed by Tony Tills, and it aired July 20th, 2001, in the United States. And it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> what's good john uh what's up man hey i just want to say i really appreciate these new intro things that you're doing and farscape has no shortage of new nonsense there is an infinite <laughs> there's are infinite possibilities <laughs> yeah. of names for me to give you yeah Daedalus descends sorry oh well hey here's a question for you what did you think of scratch and sniff Boom, whoa turn, turn it around on you if this is your first time listening i've never done this before <laughs> If you can't tell, it sounds like we've never done this before, but also this specific thing we've never done. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I kind of love Scratch and Sniff. Mm. Um, I really like when Sparscape does genre stuff and for them to tackle a thing that I re- I didn't even realize until watching it was a very big part of the pop culture zeitgeist in the time that the show came out, which was like Guy Ritchie's cinematic oeuvre. Um, and to like see them do that was super fun uh even though it led to the weird problem of like those plots often involve either way too many characters in like a lock stock and two smoking barrels kind of way or like too few characters which is kind of what farscape ended up doing where it's like john and dargo are kind of the stars of this show um and their yeah. handler who's played love wonderfully by uh francesca browder but or Fran- yes uh ben browder's wife Fran- yeah francesca buller buller yes yeah um but like everyone else on the the cast, kind of like gets sidelined to to kind of like yeah. listen and, and watch them do their fun stuff. But what, what did you think? Um, I had similar thoughts. I like you really loved the aesthetic. Um, I didn't think Guy Ritchie immediately because my first association was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, but I'm looking it up now, and that was after, so it's an anachronistic comparison. I'm guessing they're both just drawing on Guy Ritchie as kind of that. Uh, that influence but that that idea of like the kind of fast-paced funny detective movie funny detective crime movie from the early 2000s is something that i i just love that style and that pace um and also had like the quickness of editing of like a natural born killers which i did not like that movie but (laughs) it was uh similar to this episode in terms of just the volume of edits that were going on uh, so I, I loved that kind of departure from form and style that this episode was doing. Um, and I agree that I had some issues with the way that the plot was arranged or orchestrated, but I didn't necessarily fixate on those issues because the episode was just moving at such a quick pace and was legitimately very fun to watch. I barely had time to take notes during this episode because every time I'd look down, it's like, oh, now we're in a nightclub. Oh, now we're on the beach and now mm-hmm. uh, we're passed out and our clothes have been stolen. Um, but before we get to that, let's do the fun little plot reading of the summary from the Farscape Illustrated Companion for Scratch and Sniff. 
Banished from Moya by Pilot, the crew find themselves at a party in a bar where they intend to drink and dance the night away. The next morning, Creighton and Dargo awaken to find themselves in a shop window in a precinct with all their money gone. Raxil, an alien spiv, tells them that Chiana and Jewel are missing and in danger. Creighton and Dargo are skeptical until she leads them to a hangy who shows them the events of the previous evening. Chiana and Jewel appear to have been captured by a local villain, Fetor. But when Dargo goes to their rescue, he discovers that they're having a wonderful time, accepting Fetor's hospitality freely. But things soon take a turn for the worse in Fetor's basement, where he plans to extract a narcotic drug from their body essences. Yeah. So that's most of the plot, basically. I think the only other detail, like the only other moments that happen are that uh, John and Dargo save them, right? Correct. Then and that's kind also, of plot. yeah, it's also important that they remember that this episode is told through a framing device, which I found really cool, um, which is that it is so like John and Dargo have been kicked off of Moya mm-hmm. and John is trying to like make a case for why he should be able to come back and how a lot of the stuff wasn't his fault. I, I didn't really get why that whole like the consequences of that, but I really liked the way that it ended. I thought that was one of the best moments of the episode mm-hmm. um, with him talking to Pilot in this kind of like, now you got to listen to me. Here's what really happened. Um, and, and Pilot's just not having any of it. That's kind of the right. big like box that holds this whole episode. Yeah, I'd love to. I think it, we might be best served talking about this character by character as opposed to moment by moment. But Maybe we can disagree on that in a second, but I definitely want to just talk about Pilot for a moment because I love that he was like the police chief. That was kind of what Pilot was doing. It was like, ah, John Crichton, you're a loose cannon. You're off the case. And then, you know, he descends into this like vigilante mode. Um, but yeah, I just, it's like, it didn't, it wasn't a fully faithful characterization of Pilot because he was very stern and a little gruff. But it worked in genre. Like it was, a, it was a version of pilot that made sense in genre, but maybe not to pilot. But I, I, I liked it a lot. It felt, in a way, like a lot of the characters in this episode were wearing, were like doing a costumed party, or like ever, or like everyone's yeah. playing a role. And this is a thing that Farscape does all the time. But it's just like you all are not doing your normal roles. You're all being something else. So a mm. lot of it just feels very performative. And that's why, like, the only characters that I felt like were on brand and were doing stuff that they normally would do were Dargo and John. I actually thought Dargo was doing a different thing than he usually does. Like, Dargo was allowed to be a lot funnier in this episode I, than usual. I agree. I just think that Dargo has always had that capability, and this was just a chance for him to cut loose. Like, given the opportunity and gone t- taken to a nightclub, he would totally dance his ass off with a bunch of ladies. I would hope. Yeah. But he often splits the difference between, like, the serious dad who wants to live on a farm with his happy family and, like, the best wingman in the whole damn world. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of weird stuff. Real briefly, though, Lily Taylor, who wrote this episode, the other episode that she wrote, um, was a clockwork Nabari. And this is these are the only two that she wrote. Huh. Uh, I really like her writing style. I think that it leads to a lot of sort of like weird stuff because the clockwork Nabari was the uh, like the Nabari lady that got onto the ship and like tortured John and tried to like take his eyeball out, all that good stuff. She does weird stuff. And the pleasure planet that they're on, Lomo, was pretty great. Mm -hmm. But um, if we're going to do, I think we can at least give it a shot character by character because a lot kind of goes on. Yeah. And then pick up the the other pieces later. Yeah. So so what's John got going on in this episode? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> John wants to help out the girls. Yeah. I mean, I guess like we can just talk about this aspect of it right now, which is like, hey, Farscape, how cool would it have been if 
it was switched. Like if John and Dargo were caught and it was Jewel and Chiana on this like noir fast paced investigation. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't realize how badly I wanted it until you said it. <laughs> or, or like it's Jewel and Dargo or it's Dargo and Chiana. I don't know. I get John. It's not like John and Dargo wasn't fun. It was just like we had a chance here to kind of flip the script a little bit and play with it and see a new character pairing, but we didn't get that, I guess. Because we already know as viewers that John and Dargo are an amazing pairing. And this episode is dealing with genre trappings that to us in 2016 are like a little bit stale, which is just like, oh, the dude's got to go rescue the girls who are being taken over by the crazy drug lord. Um, Like that's so many movies um, and yeah. television shows and stuff. So just a flipping of of the the characters or anything like that would have been more farscape because you know the show when it does deal with genre stuff tends to explicitly try to subvert your expectations right and it, but in this I, one it just kind of felt like it was doing that yeah and it's not it's not fair of me to like critique this episode based on a hypothetical other episode possibility and i think it's a good point that like since this style was new at the time the use of the style was a, enough of a subversion and it didn't necessarily need the extra step of then subverting this new style by switching the gender roles or by switching the characters who were the protagonists of the story. But like if they were making Farscape now, then it should not be an episode about John and Dargo because that's not the most compelling way to motivate a story. Right, for sure. But there, there were little things here and there that I felt like were really awesome and Farscape-ish. Like, um, so John and Dargo, uh, they go to a nightclub with Jewel and Chiana, and then they wake up the next day um, in that classic pose that I've seen this, like, shot or scene in various things, like, in promotional stuff for the show, where John, they're in, like, this uh-huh. spherical, <laughs> the, like, spherical window. Wheel. Yeah, like, spherical hamster wheel window, and there's people looking inside... Um, and it's, it's this really gorgeous comedic shot where they look up and Dargo's like between John's knees and he's like, oh, this is weird. And then the episode and John's got like stockings on or something. It's mm-hmm. very strange. And that's kind of like a good way to start. But the part of the reason that it's like hard for us to go scene by scene is that this episode is edited so weirdly and so mm-hmm. frenetically that I just kept feeling like my video was like bugging out or something because mm-hmm. if people have watched um, YouTube poops before, which are just like this, it's like a style of. <laughs> It's a style of of editing comedic uh, internet videos where you uh, just like loop stuff and play it backwards and then like loop it weirdly for comedic effect. Like Mm. a lot of this episode felt like an extended YouTube poop uh, (laughs) where specifically the way the the visual technique that I liked the most was like you'd see a lot of the stuff happen in linear order and then someone would mention a scene that happened previously and then they'd show like half a second of it again. Yeah. for a joke They're like oh we don't want to end up in that window again cut to the window for half a second like ah and then cut back to the real world like that kind of thing it a reminds you where the episode has gone and where it's going to go and b gives them a chance to like play with time and scale and all of these different like editing styles that they haven't gotten to do previously mm-hmm. yeah i loved i think that's first of all the youtube poops comparison is somewhat apt because there is I do specifically remember a moment where Francesca Buller's character like said a line and then the they like replayed the line twice more yep. like just replayed the clip in sequence so it was kind of like uh in the movie Hot Rod the Cool Beans song have you seen Hot Rod I've not but I know I think I know the Cool Beans okay, song yeah they just say Cool Beans and then like Cool Beans gets repeated a lot cool, uh, cool, cool Beans Beans cool that beans, kind of thing. beans 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 yeah yeah and I 
I think my favorite sequences in this episode were ones that played with that kind of nonlinear storytelling. Specifically, I love the scene where Dargo busts in to try to save them and is like beating up those dudes in that weird <laughs> beach house. Yep. And then he's also talking about what happened. So you already know while it's going on that he's going to fail. And that somehow like heightens the stakes a little bit because you're, you're like, oh, how is it going to happen? Like, I know that he messed up, but what is it going to look like? And he's bringing in this energy of complaining and yelling. And it's just, it's cut really well. This is an episode where I almost cared more about who edited it, edited it over who wrote it or directed it. Obviously those are big parts of it. Um, like conceiving of this sequence is very difficult. And then it's Tony Tills, right? Who directed it? Correct. I was blown away by that too, because Tony Tills is such a, he's like a house style Farscape guy, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've seen him do inventive things, but within the constraint of always doing a more kind of conventional shooting style. Although I guess he does, maybe that's not fair, because he does do some more uh, more interesting like steady camera, handheld camera sequences, but never anything to the extent of the kind of inventiveness that's going on here. Um, so that was all great, but I really wanted to know who edited it because it was just such a smooth job and so quick and on pace. And then that that silly like that music was just as silly as the the sexy saxophone music from the last episode. Yeah. Um, but in a way where it really tied in uh the entire genre and kept the pace going. So yeah, I just thought that I thought the pacing, even though it was weird and, and the timing was odd, it was all wonderful and uh very engaging. It keeps the episode moving really fast, too, which I think yeah. is important because there's like a decent amount of ground to cover in this one. So there is some quotes in the Illustrated Companion about the editing that I thought were pretty neat that I'll, I'll bring up. But um, my favorite element of this whole episode was the and I already forgot the name of the race, but the tentacle soothsayer, uh, the Hanji uh, mm-hmm. named Kaba or whatever. Uh, just such a weird way to handle something that you could have done in another type of show or movie uh way more easily mm-hmm. uh but it almost felt like they had to hit their puppet quota for the week and they're like no we need something we need like a showcase yeah. for the creature shop to work on yeah so instead of like oh we have like access to security cameras or like how because the idea is they go to uh or francesca bullard's character uh tells them like oh i have access to the thing that'll let you see everything that happened in the club even though you blacked out um mm-hmm. and she takes them to to kaba who is this alien that is just like a it's fate it's got like a praying mantis kind of face mm-hmm. and it's got like a bunch of tentacles and the idea is it has a bunch of eyeballs that it places all over the planet so it has like cameras everywhere um and you can access them for money or unless you force it by trying to squeeze its neck <laughs> as a way of threatening it <laughs> uh-huh. um and the way that you look through those cameras is you grab one of its tentacles and you just jam it onto your eye just yeah. squeeze that tentacle into my eye and it's <laughs> It's nasty. It's really weirdly gross that they're just like, oh, let me just put you on my face so I can see what happened. That, that's that's interesting in light of the fact that this person also wrote A Clockwork Nabari. <laughs> Lily Taylor has something on going on with eyes for sure. Yeah, she just loves d- damaging my, my eye-ness. That's not a word. I don't like eye stuff. That's fair. I love yeah. eye stuff. I think it's delicious and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but what's also cool about that whole mechanic is that, and I'm sorry I use the word mechanic a lot on the show. It's just because 
I, I play, I like to think a lot about video games critically and stuff like that. So I use terms like mechanics and like narrative design and that kind of thing in that way. Mm-hmm. So I apologize for my genres flipping a lot, but, uh, it is a mechanic, like the way that they, their personalities and selves manifest in the like visual, like we're looking through the surveillance is yeah. we are here, but we can't interact with anything and we're watching the past happen. Mm hmm. And it's very cool. And Game of Thrones did a similar thing in the last season, but they kind of like hinted that the characters that are watching things happen might also be like interacting with it and being able to change the past. Whoa. So, so that stuff, it was like re- reminiscent of that for me, but I don't know. I just thought that was really cool. Um, and yeah. I want, I love that this show doesn't have to do the boring way of showing you what happened. It can just be like, no, we can, we got, we got to go to an alien. We have to go to a guy who has just the power to see things. Um, and we're going to pay him and he's going to let us check out the cameras. Uh, I, w- I wonder if there's somebody in the Farscape writer's room whose job it is to read through a script and be like, uh, more yeah, puppets. Make, make that an alien. We need yeah. that, that thing to be an alien. They're like, and then they went to the bathroom and it's like, no, 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 no. We need no, a toilet no, no, alien no, ASAP. Yeah. Please. Come on, people. This is the Flintstones. We need, <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's an alien for everything. That's true. Yeah. It is probably similar to how the Flintstones would just take different things and be like, no, what if it was a dinosaur? Yeah. It's like then. Fred washes his windows with a window wiper. No, it needs to have a beak. I don't know. <laughs> More beaks. This is, this, is, this is a sketch I should write and not try to just make up right now. <laughs> uh, but even the architecture is wild in this episode. Like around the, the or Kaba's room and like on the beach and stuff, there's just like these bubble walls and like low ceilings and low hanging. Uh, I was going to say low hanging fruit. That's not what I meant to say. Like low ceiling. Like just everything's weirdly tight and cramped and like non-traditional and like all of the architecture looks super weird i feel like the set design team it's all also deserves a huge shout out on mm. scratch and sniff oh yeah yeah this episode looked fantastic and the sets were all really really cool because when we see on planet episodes on farscape like a lot of the times it's either at night in the case of a lot of episodes or just like small areas um yeah. And this one is like the, the beach thing specifically felt really weird to me because they're outside and they're on sand mm-hmm. and it's brightly lit and they're under these like tents and stuff. And I'm like, this is so different visually for this show. Right. Um, and then like following up on that when they move in on the beach house where, uh, bad guy, bad man, uh, creepy short dude in like a black suit has Chiana and Jewel and, they go up to like the beach house and I'm just like, this was someone's summer home. You just went there. You didn't like make a set for this. <laughs> uh, and then Dargo goes up and he's like, Chiana, are you okay? And then he like goes straight between her legs to talk to her. <laughs> it's a very weird <laughs> moment. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember that. She's like, no, I'm doing fine. Get away. Just leave. And then the guys, the bad man is like, Hey, why, why are you here? I'm here for, I'm having a party and we're not armed. Just kidding. We're armed. And then Dargo's like, I thought you said they weren't armed. <laughs> It's, uh, th- yeah, that, that's also the scene that had you the line that you loved, which was, uh, Dargo trying to get into the door <laughs> and mm. he's like delivery. And the guy's like, or he just like goes up to the door and the guy's like, deliveries are in the back. And he's like in the back. Good. <laughs> Turns and then punches the guy in the fucking face. <laughs> that's a, that's a fantastic Dargo move. And speaking of Dargo, we were talking like character by character. Like he has that scene also, uh, towards the end when they're in the auction room and, we know at this point that Dargo has anger issues. That's just part of his race and part of his personality. Uh, mm-hmm. I just love that 
Of course, he's the one that gets the costume, and he's the one where the costume's only weakness is don't get angry. <laughs> like, don't raise your blood pressure and you'll be fine. He's like, well, damn it, now I'm mad. Now John touched my girlfriend. <laughs> I'm just mad. Yeah. And he, like, he animorphs back into himself or whatever when he, yeah, when he fucks that was, up. That was something. Yeah, there's a piece of trivia about that costume that I, I have a point on when we read it. Ooh. Um, yeah, but Dargo was very funny in this episode. It's... It's kind of a shame because Anthony Simcoe's comedic timing is fantastic. Like he's very, uh, he's a very capable and proficient comedic actor, and we don't get to see it too often. I would love to see. I don't know if he still does. Uh, like I don't know if he still acts. Um, but I'd love to see Anthony Simcoe like these days. Like, what's he up to? Mm-hmm. Or just doing stuff out of the Dargo costume because I have seen him and he looks. I don't know. He looks like a dude. Whatever. But like you see him in that costume and you're like, that's clearly just Anthony Simcoe in another costume. That's that's so weird because mm-hmm. I know I recognize the eyes or whatever. What is this line that I have here quoted? That's you. You're ingesting. Hmm. Oh, that's remember. like that's that's fe- fet- I need. Am I pronouncing the villain's name right? Is it Fetor? I already forgot. Is it Fetor? Something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. He's he's like giving one of the girls their their weird fluids and he's like, that's mm-hmm. you. You're ingesting. She's like inhaling the smell of her own thing. Yeah, he's he's a slime ball. He's like a cartoon slime ball. Like his his methods didn't have like there was no method to his madness. You know, he was just trying to make cool drugs, I think, and sell <laughs> people. But yeah, that's that's in genre. Like the the guy who's just like a bad guy. He's like bad a to be bad. Bad guy. The only detail about his whole side of the story that I liked was when John's introducing them to the like harvesting room and he sees the woman and he's like. He pauses and goes, that's probably his sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. that The John narrative pauses were fun, too. Although some of them, like, there was a weird pause after they were said. There's, like, a, a second of dead space and then the video resumed. Didn't happen all the time, but it happened once or twice. Yep, yep. That's, uh, not, I wouldn't call that sloppy editing. That's just, like, you, timing is a little bit off. Yeah. But that was a cool, that was a cool sort of little effect there. Uh, Harvey meets Dargo in this episode? Yeah. That was something? Mm-hmm. When, what was the context of that? They were in John's mind or in each other's minds because of the eye guy. I think the eye guy did it. Oh, yeah. He was like, oh, you're all squished in my head. So now I'm going to put you in. E- now we're all in each other's heads. And then, yeah, they're in John's head. And then Scorpius or Harvey is telling John. And he's like, oh, God, Dargo, nice to finally meet you. That was really bizarre for me. Uh, like mm. imagine somebody else meeting the voice inside your head. Like mm. how how wild is that? And then he's like, hey, y'all should take out the circuit breaker in this room and turn off the lights and everything will be easy. And then that is the part based on that scene that felt to me like a very Farscape thing. Because if this was an Ocean's Eleven or like a like a lock stock kind of movie, things would go relatively well and then go wrong in like an interesting way. Things mm. just go wrong like right away when they do this plan because they go to the auction and... Uh, they like ask to look at Chiana closely and she's like, oh, you know, you can get out by doing this and you're going to free me and it's going to be great. And then Dargo gets mad and everything just goes to shit and they have to fight their way out in a really, mm-hmm. really, really long fight scene. But then it just, yeah, then it just turns into Taken where they're just like, oh, we got to rescue <laughs> them from the sex auction because all the weird like rich guy who keeps trying to one up like every, every auction scene in everything ever is like the main character has plenty of money and they should be able to auction to buy anything. But then there's the one bidder. In the, ba- in the background, who you didn't think about, who just has a little bit more money. Right. And I don't know what that says about the people that bought, that go to those types of things, but it's just like, it's fake dramatic tension. I don't like to, I try not to use the word too much anymore, but it's just like, you need to have somebody else who can, who can always pay for more than you can. Uh, or I, I guess it's just a dra- it's dramatic tension, you know? 
Yeah, I don't I don't think that's necessarily fake. I think it makes sense. I don't know. I'm not as bothered by that trope, I guess. I just I, yeah. But anyways, what were some other scenes that you particularly enjoyed, my friend? Um, um well, we kind of alluded to this, but just to really hammer it home, there's that scene where uh, Dargo's just been drugged by Francesca Buller's character, and he's like dancing drunk in the club. Um, <laughs> he comes over to John, and he's like, uh, "Oh, nobody's gonna dance with. Nobody wants to dance with me." Uh, and then John's like, "Oh, look, look at that girl's butt over there." <laughs> he just like, he turns into like a cartoon dog, and he's yeah, like, <laughs> he's like Ooh, a "Butt, ooh, sweet booty, bye." I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a great moment. I think I just wrote here that Dargo is a booty hound. Raxil. Raxil <laughs> is Francesca Buller's character's Raxil. name. Raxil. Raxil. Uh, she's weird because the first time they see her, she's just like somebody in the crowd giggling at them. Like, oh, you weirdos. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, you definitely stole all our stuff. And she's like, no, no, I need your help. And also, yeah, the reveal at the end of the episode is like she orchestrated a lot of this stuff so that they would go in. Basically, she got Chiana and Jewel. She let them get captured so that... John and Dargo would go in, free everyone, including her partner. Right. Um, whose name I cannot remember, but I think and that guy just like died. Also, it's discovered that she like invented the machine that can suck stuff out of people. Yeah, I don't think she like wanted it to be used for something else. Yeah, uh, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. But she, uh, she like bribed the women that like knocked them out in the bar. Right. That's it's just, right. The, the, there was that scene at the part of the beginning when they're in the bar and they're like, oh, hey, girls, we have so much money on us. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you get. This is, means you're yeah. going to get like kidnapped. <laughs> it's like, you, come on. That's just that's just bad form. You don't go to a club and tell people you have a lot of money on you. That's like asking for it. <laughs> uh, Raxel comes back in a comic book, a doggo focused comic book. If people that's are interested funny. in the character. Yes. Um, I'm really interested in reading the ephemera of Farscape after uh, this show is over. And maybe we do episodes on it, maybe not. Oh, Cause, yeah, maybe. Because, like, with Buffy, it's like, there's a ton of it. There's so much, and not all of it's good. I've heard a lot of it is bad, the comic books that are, like, continuing the show. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't comic books for Farscape that continue stuff. I don't think people can correct me on that. But there is, like, canon and non-canon stories from the world of Farscape. And I would mm-hmm. love to read that stuff, even if it's not having to do with our squad, mm-hmm. uh, Team Moya slash Team Talon. Um, and that's that's basically the episode, though. I think we've just about covered anything, everything. Yeah. They free the girls, and they're like, yay, we're good. And then Pilot's like, no, you don't get to come back. <laughs> that was the part that made me laugh the most, was he's like, do you believe me? Here's my whole story. And then Pilot's like, Moya and I desire time away from your constant bickering. And this adventure, however embellished, does not alleviate that need. Bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like fuck off. Yeah, and then it really come to think of it, like what was the point of telling Pilot that story? So this gets back to my original question, which is why did he kick them off? I think his reasoning is that he kicked them off because they fight too much. Okay. So then, and yeah, in that case, why did they have to tell him the story? I don't know. <laughs> it's <a good laughs> it's weird for that reason. Because then he says, no, you all still bicker too much. Like, this is a great story, but, like, a lot of it's probably not true, and fuck off. Right. It's an open question if people want to answer that for us. Yeah. I. So when I originally thought, read, like, heard that scene, I was like, are they, they're not permanently kicked off. But I guess it's just funnier and makes more sense to be like, y'all have to take a week off to cool off or something. Like, Mm -hmm. go chill for a little while, and then we'll come pick you up on the way back. That's fun to me. Because it reminds me of like in season one where there was an episode where it started and it was like Dargo's mad and he's on a bar planet. And you're just like, wait, why did Dargo <laughs> right. leave? Yeah. <laughs> he's just gone? 
and we were confused then but now it's like eh, we all got we all got shit going on mm-hmm. we're not gonna we don't just live here yeah um oh last last thing i wanted to say before yep. we close out this episode is that i felt a similar thing to when we watched was it called reunion the um lawyer planet episode no reunion was was, was going the, to be the name of that episode right, it's dream little the, dream dream little dream thank you that's right because yeah. uh, when we watched that i was like oh it would be kind of cool to have a sci-fi legal procedural mm-hmm. there's something about maybe there's a show in there and i feel like there's a show in this in the kind of fast-paced sci-fi crime show that exists this is the same thing with the sci with the sci-fi medical show like these things exist uh, or they, they seem like they have to. It's just like it's too easy, but I can't think of an example. Right. Huh. There, I'm 100% sure there's a sci-fi police procedural, though. Like, come on. We got a fantasy um, one. We got Angel. Well, we've got any number of fantasy sci-fi, uh, fantasy legal procedurals. I feel like there's more than one. Right. But, there's yeah. A, anyway. There's an io9 article about this exact thing. And these are all from, like, the 50s. Space Patrol, Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers. <laughs> Rocky Jones, the Rob, the Space Ranger, Colonel Bleep. First of all, these names are incredible. Yeah, wow. Fireball, XL5, 8-Man. Oh, I guess, yeah, Green Lantern. That's that's what we're saying is what we want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Green Lantern yeah, as a I concept. Guess, I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's uh, that's Scratch and Sniff. Let's, uh, let's read some background information, my dude. Sure thing, my dude. The original script called for the episode to be a dark noir detective story. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Francesca Buller, a.k.a. Mrs. Ben Browder, makes her third appearance and her third role on the show. So it's one per season, right? Yeah. All right. So then we're get, we have one more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to recognize her, even though she looks drastically different. Uh, mm-hmm. It's partly because yeah. I think for this one, Omens told us, like, hey, you're going to see Francesca Buller next week. But I don't know. I still don't know what her face looks like outside of makeup. <laughs> Anthony Simcoe, so this is the fact about his disguise, originally had a different voice for the disguised Dandy Dargo, but his regular voice was redubbed in ADR so viewers would know what that it was him. Yeah. I really want to hear what his voice was. <laughs> I feel like Anthony Simcoe does great voice work, because first of all, Dargo sounds nothing like his voice, his real voice. Correct. Um, second of all, he did like an American accent in um, oh, well, the Earth one, but it was like a Scarin thing. Not the human reaction one, but the funny, scaring one. Yeah. Uh, I forget what that one was. People called. know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but he did like an American accent in that that was really funny. I just mm-hmm. f- want to see Anthony Simcoe do more comedy, I guess. I love him. The beach scenes were filmed at Marubra Beach, a popular Sydney resort at 8 a.m. in freezing cold temperatures. <laughs> Damn it. It's like uh, Wet Hot American Summer is a, sh- a movie about right. a fun summer camp and they recorded it in like a spring in the rain constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This episode contains over 1,300 picture edits. That's a lot. lot of edits. Mm-hmm. Gigi, this is a fun one. Gigi Edgley juggles fire sticks in real life and was encouraged to do so on the show when she was no- when she was noticed doing it in her off-camera time. That scene is hilarious because the whole point, they're, t- they're referring to a scene in the club where she um, is like being flirty and sexy and then like the guy comes up to her and he's like, hey, you're flirty and sexy. But it's her juggling fire sticks and I'm like, is that co- is that sexy or is that just kind of a cool trick that she can do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why it makes sense that it seemed like the creators were like, no, we need you to do it. If you can do it, then do it. <laughs> Now's the time. Yeah. Chiana's new wig debuts in this episode after it was felt that the first wig had, according to makeup supervisor Sheldon Wade, suffered almost two years of abuse. My favorite part of that fact is that the makeup super- supervisor's name is Sheldon Wade. Sheldon Wade. 
Good for name. the first, yeah, for the first time, the regular theme music is omitted from the closing credits, with a piece of lounge music substituted. Hmm. Oh, huh. oh, don't now! I want to watch Evangelion. <laughs> for the first time, Harvey meets a Moya crew member other than Crichton, Aaron, and Jothy. Yeah, I guess. I guess he did interact with Jothy. Huh, that's funny. In the past, Dargo's t- <laughs> is, yeah. In the past, Dargo's tongue sting was us- has usually been reserved for subduing fellow crew members. This is the first episode to show him actually using it in a direct offensive situation against a bona fide enemy. What Thanks, does bona fide Dargo. actually mean? What's the etymology of the term bona fide? Um, that's a good question. Bona probably means good. <laughs> Thanks, Latin. Thanks, Latin. Uh, d- d- listen, you know what? What's good? I'm looking it up on Wiktionary. You think that's going to help us? Maybe. Actually, probably. Wiktionary. Let's see. The Etymology. From the Latin bona, f- bona fide, bona f- whatever, uh, which means in good faith. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Bona- yeah, that works. I'll, so it's like I'll the allow real, it. The real deal, in good yeah. faith. Gotcha. Nobody's lying to you. The DVD features an alternative. The DVD features an alternate ending for this episode that is substantially different uh, than what was broadcast. In this version, John and Dargo are essentially forgiven by Pilot, with no reference to them being banished from Moya further. After leaving Pilot's den, they find Raxel, who, despite her involvement in the milking technology, has been taken on board Moya. Raxel enthuses about potential future adventures, but Dargo and John inform her that she will be let off on a nearby industrial planet and her data chip is destroyed. The only aspects of the scene to survive to the final edit were a quick shot of Dargo and John arguing in Pilot's chamber and a shot of them sharing a, quote, high five. Oh, whoa. Yeah, isn't that something? That seems like that's the kind of scene you cut because it makes the main character seem kind of mean. Or you just cut it for time or that's just not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. The appearance of Harvey Harvey in this episode confirms that the Scorpius clone has also been duplicated as he had also appeared to the other Crichton in relativity. Yeah. 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 Due to the numerous drug references, this episode was shifted by the BBC from its normal UK time slot of 6.45 p.m. Monday to a 9 p.m. Saturday slot in order to allow it to run uncut. Yeah, date rape drugs are bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's no good. That makes also, sense. 6.45 p.m. Yeah. So I think, I think <laughs> that's a weird time slot. I think the UK I might be wrong or like the BBC does television airing times differently because – they don't uh, have commercials, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. exactly what it is. It's a couple of lines that are fleshing out what you just mentioned in the Farscape Illustrated Companion for Season 3. There were so many characters involved that you wanted to freeze frame when you first met them and put a caption saying, Bimbo, or Bad Guy, Kemper explains. When we saw the rough cut, we realized it needed something extra. And then here's the whole line about the editing that I wanted to bring up. The face of that episode changed completely in post-production. Post-supervisor Deb Pert says... Tony and the editor, Wayne LaClosse, locked themselves away for a couple of weeks and, yep, and produced a little bit of editing magic. Ben Browder points out that he and Tills had some inkling of the eventual solution during filming. It was always in the back of our head, he says. We had to meld the two elements of the dark and light together. We were thinking Pulp Fiction motif or lock stock into smoking barrels. You're looking mm. at a way to tell a story in a fragmented but cohesive style that embraces two themes that don't necessarily tie together well. Mm. So... A lot of the editing of at least the pilot stuff happened like literally last minute. And there was stuff also in here about how they had to like rent out time that they weren't really allowed to have to finish the pilot stuff. Oh, interesting. Uh, Although Buller based her accent on the cockney tones heard in Guy Ritchie's films, some of her actual dialogue came from closer to home. They gave everything that I say in the writer's room to Raxil, David Kemper 
complains jokingly. When the pages came through, I thought the words looked really familiar. Wait, so she, like, talks the way David Kemper does? I guess, huh? Interesting. <laughs> Kemper sounds like a fun guy. Um, and then finally, here's just a fun quote from Mr. Simcoe. Anthony Simcoe loved the opportunity to get away from the studio. It was just so nice to get out and cruise on Marubra Beach and then hit a nightclub, he laughs. He also got a chance to demonstrate another side to Dargo with his drug-induced Dandy Dargo persona. When we shot it, I did a different voice, but we really needed to keep reminding people that it was Dargo, so unfortunately we had to go and put the normal voice back in ADR. Frowny face. Mm -hmm. Please, someone. Didn't Omens tell us there's a director's cut of a lot of these episodes? Yeah. I would take a director's cut. That's just the Dandy Dargo voice. (laughs) I'd love to hear it, yeah. For show, for show. That's going to do it for Scratch and Sniff. We're going to take a quick Moy bag break and be back to discuss infinite possibilities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Moya bag. In this segment, I read all the comments and feedback that we received on last week's episode and comment on it. First up, we usually check Twitter, and this week we got some interesting tweets. You can always message us at Scape Chats over there if you have some short-form messages for us. First off, we have a out-of-nowhere message from user Bacchus, who says... Hashtag Braca Lives Matter, which is, I mean, that, that's an okay joke. It's timely. I'll give you that. And if you're a new listener, then thank you and welcome to the crew. Can't forget the memo from who sent us their thoughts specifically on Incubator because they were on the episode for Meltdown. And regarding Incubator, they said, Dargo is trying to become the patriarch of the ship. And they said, true, but I didn't notice this early on. Go dudes. This whole plot with him kind of gets revolved in early to mid season four. Scorpy's friends! Strap as a nerd, not really Scorpius's friend, more of a friend of me. Bracca, aka my PK trash baby. He gets a bigger part of the series as it goes on, and a lot of people ship them, me included. They're so gay and end in love and gay. Nurse Foy does nothing. She was in Liars, Guns, and Money played by a different actress, but her entire point is to help and be useless. Uh, I forgot to mention, it was in my notes, that I was 99% sure that people ship uh, Bracca and Scorpius when I saw that episode, and I was right. Um, regarding that scene with the code, forget the logic, frell the logic, but I do like Alan's interpretation. Regarding the scene where Scorpius sees the uh, wormhole code in the clone's head, it's all nonsense. Uh, can we talk about how funny the opening scene was with John and Scorpius's mind? John knows the trope and he's annoyed. It's fantastic. And finally, more non-consensual touching is to come, for comedy, next episode, and it squicks me. But in Season 4, another assault is taken super seriously again, especially for the character to which it happens. I kinda want them to make up their mind, and by that, I mean stop using it as a device. I think the way the show is going with this is a bit of both. We need empathy for him for future events, but we also gotta take everything he says with a grain of salt. Everything. For the future. Thank you, Omens. We appreciate the comments. We have some new messages from recent new listener, No Class Twit, who says that they love the show and they hope that we eventually stop seeing Rigel as just a puppet. And in regards to Scratch and Sniff, which we just discussed, they said it's a very divisive episode and most people think it's too bizarrely done, but they have a particular fondness for it, as they always do. Next up, we get the return of lovely commenter. My name is and she says that the popular opinion is that Chiana, possessed by Lava Girl, doesn't have sex with Crichton, but does somehow zap him to orgasm, which is a very Farscape thing. And then there's some clarification on John's choice of nickname for Chiana, which is Pip. Uh, Chiana's nickname was supposed to be Squirt. Browder changed it to Pip regarding Great Expectations. He thought it fit her better. I feel like I've read before that Pip was a Great Expectations reference, but I forgot. 
and I'm probably going to forget again, but thank you, and I'm glad that now it's most definitely on the recording. And they're still working through our podcast, and they said that they're trying to catch up, and they really liked our Old As Your Omens guest episode, which was last week. And we've actually gotten a lot of positive feedback about that, which makes me really happy, um, because we had a ton of fun recording it, and we were nervous doing our first guest episode, like, are people going to like this? Are they going to think the dynamic is weird or what? But it seems pretty much universally that people were pretty big fans of Omens and her contributions to the show. Um, and we'd love to do more guests before we finish, or even when we're doing bonus episodes at the end. If you'd like to be a guest on Scape Chats, you can send us a clip of your voice to scapechats at gmail.com. Moving right along, though, we have the Reddit thread, which can be found, as always, at reddit.com slash r slash farscape. Top comment this week is from Roombot, who says, Another great episode, guys. Also, kudos to your guest this week. Sometimes when there's a new person on a podcast, it breaks the dynamic of the show and makes podcasts seem a bit unbalanced or even uncomfortable. However, this was not the case with Scape Chats. Old As Your Omens was excellent, and I enjoyed listening to all three of you discuss Meltdown very much. Roombot, you are so nice, and we are overjoyed that people enjoyed our guest episode. Blue Blaze Spear, coming in as always with the long comments, which I'll save for last because I kind of want to dig into this one. Uh, but first, I'll get to this comment from Leo Chris, who says, Listen to the podcast a few days ago and forgot to comment, so I don't have many specific things to say, but I did want to say that I loved Omens' contributions this week. Also, I didn't think there was any issues with your discussion on Incubator. You handled the subject matter really well, which we always try to do, and thank you. And here, going back to Blue Blaze Spee, a regular commenter, long-form commenter, wonderful human being. I totally feel Dax static as a fellow verbose commentator. I can do nothing concisely. And we wouldn't have you any other way, Blue Blaze Sphere. Magellan asked what other applicable words people pulled out of the word Farscape. And the closest thing I can remember from back in the day, fans from the more southern areas of the US noted that where they're from, Farscape means fire escape, which is funny to me. And also kind of ties in with Ben Browder's, or rather John Crichton's upbringing, I guess. I get that you guys wanted to use care when talking about the rape in Incubator. I've always thought fondly of this episode, but that part was the one thing that always made me conflicted. The show had been a bit rapey a couple times before then, but this was a full-on assault, and it feels sort of tropey to have the villain be the result of rape, which I agree with, and that's what we mentioned. I think we're supposed to feel weird and conflicted about it, and, if so, kudos to the creators because that's how I feel. I'm glad that Clone Crichton calls out Scorpius. He essentially says, Sure, the Scarens seem evil, but have you acted any better than they have? As bad as the Scarens seem here, I appreciate the Neural Clone ultimately concluding that two wrongs don't make a right and that Scorpius can shove off. It was fun to hear a new voice chiming in on Meltdown in the form of at old as your omens. There was always a possibility that the whole thing could have turned into a hot mess, but it worked out pretty solidly. I don't think that anybody who listens to the podcast was shocked that this would be your first guess. Which is funny to me, because you're right, 100%. As ever since Omens first started laying down those awesome memos, we were like, yeah, we should probably make this happen. It went well enough that I'll be interested to see if anybody else will now jump in. The call is out there, folks. Any of you want, you can come in and you can try and be better and, and do and talk about whatever episode you like. Omen's talking about Meltdown being a good sick episode. The Heat-inspired title made me think of Season 4's Lava's A Many Splendored Thing, which is not a good sick episode. And I've seen various reviews ponder the concept of consent during this episode because John and Aaron were drugged during their sexual shenanigans, essentially. For me, there was enough indicators that along the way suggesting that consent wasn't compromised in this situation. The biggest cue for me was after the crisis was averted, there were no regrets on anyone's part. I can see how it might give someone pause, though. And that's basically all I have to say on that. I would just be repeating what you're saying, uh, Blue Blaze Spear. So thank you to all the Reddit commenters. If you are a Reddit person and you want to jump in on the discussion, it's always there. We post a thread every week. 
Shout out to the mods of Arts of Farscape for letting us do that. Um, much appreciated. Finally, we have one email this week from Dax Static. I'm going to read this whole one out because it's relatively short. Greetings, Alan and Magellan. Hope you had as good a time watching these three episodes as I did re-watching them. I must confess, Scratch and Sniff is one of my favorite episodes of not only Farscape, but just about all of TV. It's definitely the one episode I've seen the past couple of years the most. It's so out there and wacky and different, even for a different show like Farscape. I've shown this episode to friends who've never seen the show before, and they all admit to liking it even though they don't know what the hell is going on. Sadly, it didn't convince anyone to watch the rest, but they really liked this one at least. Even the music makes me laugh. I do think this is a fun episode to show people who haven't watched the show, but it might not get them to want to watch more, because it's very self-contained, but it's interesting that you showed that to people who haven't watched it before. Then there's the awesomeness that is the two-parter Infinite Possibilities. Farscape doesn't often do all-out action, but when they do, oh boy, aside from Stark still being ever so creepy face when talking to Aaron, what I'm starting to notice the second time around is how annoying Talon is getting by never listening to Crace, which, this is Alan speaking, uh, that's kind of, to me, explained away by the Talon as a sassy teenage boy kind of thing. But anyways, John and Aaron running through the building, shooting everyone they meet right before they rescue Furlough reminded me of the old John Woo movie, Hard Boiled, if you've ever seen that. I have not seen that film, although I do know of John Woo and his works. I've only seen Face Off, I think that's the only John Woo movie I've seen, but I know Hard Boiled is a good one. Does pe do people remember the like 2008 Xbox game Stranglehold? That was a John Woo property, I think. And Chow Yun-Fat was the face of the main character. Stranglehold was really weird. Anyways, this week we finally see Harvey in Moya John's head, but only ever so briefly. The other John gets rid of his Harvey for good, at least. We think so, since he dies at the end. Whoops. People should have watched the episode before listening to this episode of the podcast. <laughs> and we can never really know if that Harvey was 100% gone, but I like to think he was. And of course, sadly, the story of the two Johns comes to an end. But of course, you know the repercussions. From all this is going to have to be big once everyone gets back together. Finally, thank you for the bumper you made me. I love it, though I still feel like I'm not worthy. Oh, an awesome job by Omens last week. She fits in great. It's as if she was always there. I like to think that maybe Omens has just been hanging out in the background while we record, but that would be also really weird. So uh, I'm going to pretend that it's true and then joke about it. Like I just did. What? Anyways, <laughs> that's going to do it for the Moy bag this week, folks. If you want to email us, we got that in there. We've got tweets, Reddit, any way you want to contact us and you, know, and you have a method of doing that, go ahead shoot us some messages we love reading them we love responding to them and we love you the listener now on to infinite possibilities infinite possibilities is a two-part episode the first half titled daedalus demands was written by carlton eastlake directed by peter androchides and it aired july 27 2001 while the second half was entitled icarus abides and it was also written by Mr. Eastlake, but it was directed by Mr. Ian Watson, and it aired August 3rd of the same year. <laughs> John, this was a lot for this week. Um, not just because we watched three episodes, but because, holy shit, we lost a character this week. Yeah. Well, kind of. Sort of. Right. It was yeah. uh, It was a unique set of circumstances. Um, I think it's a good choice for us to cover the two of these as basically one long episode, because it's a, I mean, it's a two-parter. Um, the main, like my opinion of the two of them basically splits as the first half felt really exciting and, uh, weird and like kind of, I, I was really exciting to see Jack the ancient again. Um, and then the mm -hmm. second half was a lot of sad and then a lot of very, very sad. 
uh, almost to like the point of not boredom, but just like a ennui or a melancholy that I felt towards the mm-hmm. middle of it. And I'm like, oh, everything just sucks. I don't even know. Ugh. And then I'm the big glad moment. We, yeah, I'm glad we covered them as one just because that cliffhanger at the end of the first episode, I legitimately said out loud, oh, come on to it. It was ridiculous. Right. And it, it's the classic television thing where the next right. episode solves it in two seconds yeah exactly. it's like uh anyways it's fine but it's just mm-hmm. seeing jorp again and getting to write jorp in my notes again <laughs> was really pleasant and exciting for me it was worth it yeah yeah uh so what did you think over all of these episodes i first of all these episodes coupled with scratch and sniff this whole trio is such a great showcase of farscape's full range comedically and dramatically it can really just kind of hit pretty much everything um as for the episodes themselves i thought the first episode was pretty rad in terms of all the elements from like season one that it was bringing back and making relevant to the the current plot as it stands i knew I had kind of like spoiled for myself that these certain elements that furlough and Jack the ancient would come back here. But also I think we together kind of spoiled that when we watched episodes with them earlier and we're like, Oh, are they going to come back? And they did, or it said that they would. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what it would have felt like to watch that first episode live when it was airing. Cause it starts with that moment of like something weird's going on. And immediately John is like, Oh, this is the ancients. Yeah. And it's like, what, the what? Like, we haven't seen those people for two seasons. Which translates taught, like, to about you... two years in the show and in real life. Right, exactly. So it's, uh, I'm wondering if people would even like, rem- especially that moment where Jack's talking to John, it's like, uh, you know, well, did you give anybody this information, whatever? And then John immediately is like, ah, oh, furlough. And <laughs> people in the audience were probably like, who? The, what? The, that side character? From that right, furlough is the type of character uh, Dargo that and you're John just like, like shake hands and almost sorry. make out with each other. Yeah, yeah, but we can talk about furlough anyway. So that, that's the first episode. It's really cool that they're tying all these things together, um, and sent, because of the way that we're watching this and the way that we're like paying attention to everything, it was rewarding. But I don't know what that would have felt like in the span of watching the show live like if you would have been like oh man it's this stuff or if you would have been like what like jack the ancient i can see that's great because the human reaction is great it's a classic episode right yeah but furlough it's like what are you talking about um but th- that's that's great storytelling that they're kind of using everything that has happened right we've established at this point that farscape is a show that's really good at picking up pieces that it it's set up earlier um it's actually a very comic books sort of thing I've been reading a lot of those recently and, and yeah, kind of true. thinking about the way that these like arcs pick up from each other. Um, and I think the the previously on helps because uh, hell if I remembered who Furlough was until the previously on basically summed up the whole plot of, uh, of her episode. You know what? What's up? Netflix automatically skips the previously ons, I think. Or at least it, it does for me. Right. So I didn't even like uh, think that that so, yeah, you could have happened. That. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the previously on was basically like, hey, here's the plot of the whole furlough episode. And here's the it's like it was like pretty long. It was like also here's the neural clone. And here's uh, Jack the Ancient, like everything. Um, Okay, well, I kind of I take back part of what I said. I think it's still watching the previously on you would probably be like, what? Why is this relevant again? Um, But I guess it does refresh that information. 
that's a it's a pretty common thing when sort of like larger scale shows like this want to pick up something and they got to be like, well, okay, hold on. You need to remember who this character is. Um, and for, mm. for us, I remember being like the most memorable thing about that episode, which I don't think we liked that much because um, that had like Maldus or something in that episode. And we were just like, oh, no, 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 it didn't have Maldus. It was uh, it was till the, bl- the blood runs clear. Those trackers were coming after them. And then oh, there was oh, like yeah. sand and the goggles and uh, the fake Scorpius hologram, all that stuff. That was a cool episode. But I don't remember we didn't like it for its very we reason. didn't love it we didn't love that episode okay. the the other thing is like it almost feels like this is a part two to that specific episode because they spend a lot of their time on i think it is a dambada <laughs> the name of the like planet yeah it's like, what? On. yeah it's a great name um and it led to some of the best the best action scenes that this show has ever seen in like just in case you didn't know that they watched a lot of Mad Max because it's Australia and they cribbed half of the actors from the Mad Max <laughs> movies, we just have uh-huh. dune buggies now because fuck it. Yeah. Dune buggies are sweet. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. I So I've spoken to the first episode. I think the second episode was this odd mix of like a lot of filler. Um, oh, yeah. A, like a ton of filler. Great action with the dune buggies and then just like a sad fest at the end. Um, but it was paced pretty oddly i got is it weird to say that i got legitimately bored during uh icarus abides i just i, I don't also know. did i also did okay and i i yeah. paid enough attention like i knew what was going on um it took me a second when john like saw the blue light and i'm like oh but knowing history like knowing how real history works and there's like amazing note about this in the illustrated but like that moment you're like yep that is it john has died john so i was like not yeah floored when it happened like they were in the bedroom him and aaron but that part was also amazing that just wasn't a surprise to me that it was confirmed there's like specific Mm -hmm. stuff about that scene too that i think we should talk about but we'll get to it um sure but getting back to the first episode i really i laughed at the scene where jack comes onto the ship and it's kind of this fun moment where john is now the character who knows what's going on and everyone else is like what the fuck is this thing that's on our ship like what is (laughs) this guy he looks like some weird white guy and now, but then he's like also talking like a weird alien. And then, uh, Chris is like putting a gun on him and he's like, who are you? And then Jack is like, my name is, <laughs> <laughs> but you can call me Jack, but you can call me Jack. Uh, I wrote his name is Dingle Dangle, which is not, it, that was funny to mm. me. Uh, and then there was a really long battle scene and, uh, I want to talk about Chris. I- oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, we can talk about Craze. Just a quick note on Jack. I'm bummed that they did him CG. Yeah, huge bummer. Because the because the puppet was really cool. It was that they had awesome. the human reaction. I think I really like that puppet. I think I don't know what like budget wise why they did that. Maybe, but um, the problem is that the, I think this... they did it for the effects edits that they did. That, yeah, that was my and guess that it would be hard to yeah. do that edit into a puppet. Right, and they had to, like, make it do stuff physically at certain points, and, like, maybe that was a little harder with the puppet, I don't know, because then human reaction, it just kind of stands there and, like, gesticulates, uh, but yeah. just, like, especially when he, like, you know, spoilers for later in the uh, the second episode, but, like, when he gets killed or whatever, and then he just, like, trans- he anamorphs back into the ancient uh, instead of looking like John's dad, and it looks all gross, and, like, it looks like the Terminator 2 white goo, and you're just like, ugh, ugh. Yeah. If this was a puppet, this would have been rad. It just doesn't feel real, which, yeah, really detracts from the character. Because you're supposed to like Jack at this point. You're supposed to be like, I care about the Ancients, but I also care about specifically Jack the Ancient and how he mm-hmm. relates to Crichton. Um, so that that stuff was a big, like, my one of the biggest bummers of the show visually for me. 
Uh, I really want to bring up Crace real briefly because uh, Crace got a whole lot to do, or Mr. Tupu got a lot to do acting wise. Uh, Talon is blinded, and so am I. (laughs) Ah, He's just screaming a lot. Like ninety percent of this episode is him yelling. Yeah. Um, and we got lots of good interplay between him and Stark uh, on the ship on Talon. Again, there was like parts in parts one and two where they're on the ship. And then in part two, their whole plot is a Scarin has gotten on the ship. And it's like, I'm taking this. And I loved that plot so much. It was like, it was like a, not like a Three Stooges thing, but just like a kind of like old style comedy where it's just <laughs> yeah. like the bad yeah. guy's like, I'm here. I've taken you over. And they're like, oh, sure. You can have it. You can have it. I don't know how to work it. And they're like, he's like, all right, I can mm-hmm. wait. Let's figure this out. And then they yeah, outsmart him like, like that. A- yeah, it had like a weekend at Bernie's kind of energy a little bit. Totally, yeah, that's a very it's good a or like an eighties kind of yeah, a uh, screwball comedy thing. Exactly, because because uh, Crace is legitimately blinded because again Talon is blind due to the solar flares on Narshada or whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whoopsie, I let a little Kotor slip in. Um, and and I'm so gonna reference Kotor later, so look out for that. Oh, excellent. Uh, and so and then there's that great line where he's like, oh. You know, the half blind is leading the blind or something. Uh, like, of course, Stark is the one to be the eyes because he only has one eye, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, he's wonderful. Uh, does, oh, <laughs> I kind of want to get all the small characters out of the way quickly. Uh, Rigel, yeah, Rigel also. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> Rigel got yeah, a gun. This is where I was going to reference KOTOR, uh, which is that he's relegated to that, like, mini game that you have to play in KOTOR when you're about to fly off the planet in the Ebon Hawk and you have to like shoot all the dudes running at your ship. And it sucks. Yeah, and it's like, oh god, I just want to go away. <laughs> I just want to do the co- He's like, I just I don't want I want to do the KOTOR thing. I don't want to like click awkwardly and like make this takes so long and yeah. uh. But it's funny to me that Aaron basically assigns him to the guns uh as an excuse for the writers to not have to ride Rigel into this episode and to give him like physically something to do i just thought it was funny because we've never like that puppet its arms can't move very much they don't have a lot of like especially a y-axis movement so they put him like under the turret or like under the arms of the turret and they're like you can do it and then they cut away and he's done it but you could never show that pot that puppet manning that turret because they would that wouldn't work Mm -hmm. they have to cut away to show it um which was funny to me because he does do really well he actually like kind of kills it and it was nice to be like oh shit rigel's kicking up his weight tonight this is really good yeah it's not his fault yeah that was cool not nothing nothing bad that happened this episode was his fault uh and it was really funny how he was talked into that too because he had that conversation with aaron and she because this is a, a race the what are they called the things that they're fighting the charids charids something like that yeah the charids yeah yeah um talking about how the charids had gone to war with the hynerians and killed a bunch of them um and then he was like i've something about like a dominar's never been forced into service you can probably find we can look for the exact quote in the transcript um and then aaron talks him into it by saying like oh we're all your soldiers conscripted into the military like i just wanted to know if there was a sense of honor and sacrifice Ooh. in Iberian culture and he's like all right well I guess I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, he says dominars are far too valuable for combat, much less front lines. Um, mm-hmm. I really liked the, and this is like a pretty subtle thing that they do, but the hinting that the Hynerians and the Charids are like predatory races to each other or like a predator prey race. 
Um, like they are the mm-hmm. eternally at war. That is a very common thing in sci-fi is to have like a race that we're used to and then be like, also, here's the one that hates them eternally. Um, and it works because it mm-hmm. just it gives a face to the mindless hordes that are attacking because they couldn't make like 10 million scarens because as we've learned, every scarin on the show has to be unique and some sort of villain. So to make the like grunt villain. And they're is... pretty elaborate, pretty elaborate costume and puppet work too. Exactly. They're very... Um, hard to make a lot of so it's easier to just be like oh these are dudes in suits they're another race but to also justify it as like these are the race that rigel's people have gone to war with forever is really clever of them um yeah and then there's furlough who um is just in it for herself uh yeah you texted me fuck furlough at some point (laughs) (laughs) i did i mean in a way that like the episode wanted me to think that you know yeah yeah yeah. like i I think she's a well crafted and rounded and performed character it's just she's crafted and rounded performed in a way where you're supposed to dislike her and her motivations magda zubanski is the name of the actress who plays furlough uh and she's awesome she's got that really cool eye thing which i think is just contacts but it kind of makes it look like she's always looking at you with eyes wide with eyes wide open um (laughs) not the tune to that song she's she's yeah she's got like a weird level of awareness to her that not a lot of the side characters on the show do she kind of knows what's yeah, going on yeah that's a great point she knows all the angles in a way that other people don't and she's pl- um, she's playing everyone yeah. in a really smart way like she clearly from the beginning is like i know who i'm working for and i feel no guilt that i'm potentially leading to good people dying because i'm not based on a moral code i'm based on money and self-service yeah i kind of got sick of everybody trusting her though yeah. Because from the very beginning, it was clear that she was in it to sell the technology. And it I just didn't buy why anybody would at any point think that she wasn't still angling to do that. Right. And like we I feel like I knew that from from till the blood runs clear. Like, of course, this lady's going to be mm-hmm. in it for for the tech to sell the technology. She's not going to like use it to save the world or give it to the good people. Um, so in a way like that, she is playing against Jack, actually. Who is the character that's very much like, it is extremely important that I keep tabs on everybody who has access to this. Um, mm-hmm. And John doesn't tell him about Scorpius or Harvey for a while. And that's a big reveal in the, in the end of the first episode. Um, mm-hmm. And then I really, this was the moment that I started to think that John wasn't going to make it. Uh, and I may, this might be hindsight bias, but when Jack basically told him, oh, that Harvey thing that's going on in your head, we can just take that out. We're going to have to do some work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, no, he's <laughs> he's going to get it out and then he's going to die. Exactly. Um, and yeah. I guess, yeah, like looking back, I'm like, yeah, I guess that was pretty easily telegraphed. I don't think I necessarily picked it up in the moment, but I was certainly starting to raise some flags of like, uh oh, this is like the whole thing that has defined John for a season and a half. This can't just end. You can't just resolve this. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of also know that it means that Jack is going to have to die. Because otherwise he would just pop over and do it to the other John. Right. Uh, It's the same thing like they can't, like we said a couple weeks ago or something, they probably won't just kill one of the Johns. Like we just said that a few weeks ago. But I guess the way to specify that or to quantify that statement is they can't unceremoniously kill one of the Johns. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if anything, the thing that this John gets is ceremony and like a a proper goodbye. Oh, yeah. Almost too much ceremony. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of the second episode is spent being like, ah, John is doing his best. John has really come through a lot these days. Um, yeah. Kind of weird that John didn't tell Jack that he'd been twinned. 
Yeah, he didn't mention that at all. All we learned Which seems like a pretty important thing if you're trying to keep tabs on who all knows everything. Well, he also didn't tell him about Harvey for a while, which I was a little confused by. Like, why didn't he tell him? Yeah, I think that's more understandable just because that Harvey made a good point that, like, if he finds out about me, he's going to kill you. Right. Which there's most of the things that Harvey says, it was dark, but it was plausible. Right, right, right. Um, but I think, like, the twinning thing is kind of like, Jack should know about that. Because you twinned the, all the wormhole knowledge, too. Yeah. So, like, I don't know, taking care of one of these Johns isn't as big of a deal because it's like you have a whole other John that is on the ship that's, like, been... The, that, the other John is actually probably easier to find than this one. Uh, so the fact that they found this one is mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, you got rid of the, the hard one now. It's all that's left is the guy that's go busy yeah, was like, it, gallivanting. Was it just by chance that Jack that Jack picked this guy to yell at? Because he, like, beamed point. in to yell at John specifically. I feel like what happened was... There was like a wor- well, there was a wormhole outside of Talon, and then Jack was coming through that wormhole at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. So, the, so this crew was near a wormhole that Jack happened to also be in, and that's why they picked it. They he found this one. Um, right. I want to talk more about the two Johns when we get to the death scene. Yeah, I have a question about worm wormhole stuff for a second here. Oh, sure. Just Jack coming to him. So okay, so the ancients know how to use wormholes, right? Right. right. They Okay, I'm about to answer my own question, so it's not that big a deal. In a human reaction, the whole point of doing the mind experiment with John was to see if Earth would be a suitable new home for his race, right? And he was like, we only have enough whatever to move one more time. But creating wormholes seemed pretty easy for him to do. So my own answer to my question is that it's not that they had one more wormhole's worth of energy. They just only had one more move's worth of energy or people or whatever left so it's a moot point at this point because i'm saying something and answering my own question but it's just uh, i'm thinking about like the ease with which one creates a wormhole with this technology it seems like it's much easier than i was initially thinking which makes it much more important in my mind right i think it's it's more a matter of like it's probably really easy to figure out on a basic level how to make a wormhole weapon but the hard part like the part that only john has and I guess some of the ancients have or whatever is like controlling that because we saw like Scorpius's failed tests to get people through wormholes and all of that. But another interesting thing to consider about the wormhole technology, which again, I'm kind of cribbing, cribbing from the illustrated companion is like you hear Scorpius say, I want John's wormhole technology so that I can crush the Scarens. And mm-hmm. OK, so like what do wormholes do? They take things from one place and put them somewhere else. Mm-hmm, uh, right. you you hear that and you go i don't really necessarily know how that's a military weapon but mm-hmm. we learn in the second episode of these two that just that alone means you could do stuff like for example wormhole a sun onto a planet and just nuke a planet or wormhole an entire ship into a into god knows where and just put it somewhere else mm-hmm, like, exactly you have you have the power of space time basically you can just like move things through space uh like cosmic bodies and that in and of itself, is a legendary ability that could not only crush someone like the Scarens, but also most people, <laughs> like all yeah. humanity, all of everything. Right. Alien yeah, because I, I had the same, uh, I was wondering the same thing about like, well, how do you weaponize this? Um, and then John is talking to Aaron and she's like, is this the kind of weapon that can destroy a ship? And he's like, this could destroy, destroy a whole planet. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know about that. And then he's telling, uh, Stark and and um, Crace, 
put the ship in the path of the wormhole that I'm about to create. And I'm still kind of like, well, okay, is he just going to like pop him, pop him somewhere? How does that work? And then he puts the other end into a sun. And I started just, my mouth kept getting wider and wider at that whole sequence. Yeah, it's... It was crazy. It's such an important thing to visualize. Like, maybe it was incredibly expensive, but, like, you need that for everything that's going to happen from here on out to make sense of, like... Because now you know the real stakes. Like, you can do a lot of damage with this thing. And quickly and efficiently, like... The, you just never see people in this type of thing, like mili- space militaries, use something like wormholes to create chaos and death. Like, that's just a really interesting and weird and, like, horrifying mm-hmm. concept. Um, and, it, and it brings it, to mind, I think this is important to bring up, like, early nuclear tests um, in America, right. in the United States and that kind of thing. Well, because it has that same, that same uh, branching capacity where there's a very clear peaceful application of this technology and there's a very clear dangerous warlike application because with nuclear energy it's like on the one hand it could be you're generating energy and on the other hand it's you're creating a devastating bomb right and then with these wormholes it's like you are creating travel that could make communication and settlement and a galactic civilization so much easier to craft or you can like really destroy every planet. And it's horrifying in the same ways. And that's why uh, when he looked at the light, the blue light, I was like, oh, they're just doing that. Because I believe that actually happened to someone um, in real life. Like one of the first people who, who discovered how to weaponize nuclear technology just exposed themselves for like a brief second to the radiation and then died a couple months later because whoops, the radiation in that small beam of light will kill you quickly and painfully um right so it's a it's a really uh unwieldy unwieldy like ability that i totally get at this point why everyone is battling over um and i think it'll be interesting to see how that uh like metaphor of like the wormhole technology is close enough as to not only nuclear technology but like different types of tech military tech that could potentially destroy us or help us because there's plenty of stuff like that today like the internet for example um Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that could destroy us or help us um so that kind of thing is it's a pretty clear metaphor that i'm interested to keep tracking as the show yeah i i think also another piece of it of the the debate the philosophical debate about wormholes that this example brings up that is somewhat different from the nuclear example is um because in our history nuclear power began in the hands of the United States, right? So it was already associated with a global superpower, which created the urgency in other global superpowers to develop their own nuclear programs in order to kind of keep even, right? Yeah. Um, But Furlough, when she's talking to John after Jack is dead and trying to convince him like, hey, we could still make a lot of money with this thing. um, She's saying like, well, we could sell it to everybody. We could, or we could get people to pay us to sell it to nobody. And I was like, "Oh, that's actually I didn't think about that." Um, you have you have a you named, have the ultimate bargaining things, chip. But, yeah, yeah, sorry, but yeah, there's like you. I don't know that. Like, if I was in John's position, not that I would take that deal, but it's just not something that I had considered. That there's so much power in having this knowledge, um, and there are a million ways to exploit it, and the way to keep it safe and to keep it peaceful is 
so much more treacherous. Yeah, and the line specifically here is, uh, we can sell it to everyone as a deterrence, give it to no one, and charge them to maintain the balance. Or we could keep it to ourselves and find a peaceful application. He says, furlough, is it always about the money? And then she says, is there anything else? I mean, how much sex can you have? Oh, I love and this then, line, yeah. And he's like, yeah, good point. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I like his line. What was his line in response? Oh, uh, hmm. I don't know. I haven't maxed out yet. <laughs> that's yeah, <the> point. <laughs> it's, that's a fun line. Uh, yeah, they, they got some good back and forth. They're kind of like the, they, they work the best together. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't talked a lot about Aaron, though. Um, I feel like she wrings a lot of pathos out of realizing that the person that she cares about and has finally come to accept and like give her life to um, is going is has the information a to kill or save a lot of people and also will probably sacrifice himself. Like she doesn't seem surprised. Mm-hmm. She just seems like, like she's coming to the acceptance of it. And that's like the saddest yeah. thing about her realization. Right. The. Yeah. Claudia Black is just so phenomenal um, because she can really travel through power and vulnerability uh, moment to moment in a way that's constantly captivating. Um, And it, I don't know, it just, it fills the screen and it feels huge. Um, And she has like, between these two episodes, she has several moments of really scene stealing emotion. because you have in the end of the first episode going into the second where Harvey takes over John briefly and is trying to conv- trick her into killing him. Um, and she's so tortured about it because she she just can't do it. Um, but she knows that she has to or she thinks that she has to given the circumstances. Um, and we could talk more about Harvey and about that moment in a minute. Um, and then, of course, you have John's death at the end. Um and the moment where she realizes that he's dead, but then also the part where uh, he's like, okay, I got to go fly this thing and set off this weapon. Um, and she's like, so it's your life for everybody else's. And he's like, uh, yeah, of course it is. Uh, this is a, an exchange that's worth finding yep. uh, in the transcript. Um, but basically he's saying like, yeah, of course it is. What would make me different from anybody else? And then she says that, well, the difference is that I love you. Yep. And it's like, wow, there you go. Uh, she says, you'll talk me through it. You will get help and you will not argue with me on this one. He says, damn it. This is not something I can coach you through. It's half intuition, half feeling. I know it like I invented it. And then she says, it's your life for everyone else's and you're different. How I'm different because I love you. And then he says, then, you know, I have to do this. I'm coming back, which woofa doofa. I, mm, I wished that, I don't know. John's death bummed me the hell out. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I just feel like the show has so many moving pieces that I was like, this is important. But like, we are onto so much bigger things now. And I'm so happy. Like, that bummed me the hell out. And it felt like such a tender, personal, like, really intimate moment between two great actors uh, Mm -hmm. in that scene. But there are bigger things going on now. So I just, I felt like I wasn't wrecked by it at the time. And that may just because I was like cold and I was like, not again, not paying super, super duper attention to episode yeah. two, but I was well, part like, of, sorry, go ahead. No, nah, that's all I was going to say. I wasn't super wrecked by it for a few reasons. I think one of them is that we have another John Crichton. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like he's, that character's not dead, dead. We're going to, we're just still going to see that character for the rest of the show. And then the other thing is that this character had such a fulfilling, death like this is the perfect way for him to die yeah yeah and it it fully fulfills and closes off a lot of who john Crichton was in season one 
um, while still opening up potential for the other John Crichton to move forward and to do a lot of good. I, yeah, I agree. Um, there's lines in the, in the companion that I'm going to read about, about the John stuff. Um, so I think we should do the background info for part one, and then we're just going to go into part two and kind of wrap up. Yeah, that works for me. Okay. All right. Uh, part one. Okay. Background info. This is from, just in case we haven't said it in a while, farscape.wikia.com, the Farscape Encyclopedia Project. Thank you, Farscape Encyclopedia Project. Thank you. Okay. Ben Browder and Wayne Pigram uh, were among the last to ride the roller coaster at Luna Park. The coaster was dismantled shortly after filming and transferred to Queensland. That's pretty cool. Let's. I want to talk about those sequences for a minute because I think those were my favorite part of the first episode. The the John and Harvey on the roller coaster talking it out? On the roller coaster in the bumper cars. Uh, I just thought they were really cool. It's it's a really weird setting for them to take the show to, even though it's yeah, like obviously exactly. the the visions. Because I don't know, there's something beautiful and like cinematic about them going to a car drive through or like the about to go to like to hit John's father's uh, wedding or something or John's wedding. Remember, like they were out a truck mm-hmm, park, right? Like that kind of stuff is all like very classic '80s. Like oh, these are places like a roller, like a, a theme park. Feels like a very specific choice to be like, hey, this is like a happy part of John's life, or like this is a mm-hmm. part where he like has history. Of just being like, it's like a symbol of pure joy and innocence. Uh, and right. Well, it's it's like visually very joyful, but at the same time, these rides are meant to induce fear. And there's, a, there's violence and fear in this environment um, that enables the joy in a way that makes it kind of haunting and maintains the frenetic high-paced energy that the episode wants to maintain while still doing this kind of uh visually very very different um thing so that i thought it was a great choice to to put the, those scenes in an amusement park oh yeah it's like the the blending of like it's a childhood thing but the ro- like roller coasters are still scary for a lot of people and then they are mm. dangling off the side of the roller coaster and you know uh scorpius yeah, brings scared, up that scared me scorpius brings up aaron and john's like do not play the aaron card you killed her <laughs> he's like but yeah. she's alive and he's like well zon's gone you cannot this just feels once again like in the episode where mm-hmm. uh john is it's like the john clone in scorpius's head and he's like see everyone else sucks aren't i great and it's like no you don't get to get off for the things that you've done like you are just yeah. consistently making john's life a living hell and he finally gets to right. be like no i'm done with you and they fight it out and then it seems at the end of the first episode like john has lost and jorp is back Jorp's back. Yep, that's the episode. He's not back, folks. Come on. Come on. Uh, You want to read the background information, though, for that? Yeah, I'll continue through the background info here. Uh, The Luna Park sequences were originally scripted to take place on the river beside the Homebush Bay Studios, but Peter Andrikides felt that the funfair would be more spectacular. I I agree. I agree. Also, I didn't realize that we, we, we went on that point because we were starting the background info. My bad. Yeah, sorry. Uh... It was the first piece. Sydney Harbor Bridge can be seen during the amusement park scene. I nice kept an eye out for that. I love Sydney bit. Harbor Bridge. It's my favorite it's bridge my in Sydney. It's, yeah, absolutely. The Dambada sets had to be recreated as the Till the Blood Runs Clear sets were dismantled, probably because they never thought they'd go back there again. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs> like, why would they? The crew traveled to the sand dunes at Colonel, south of Sydney, on the flight path of the airport to do so. 
Damada. It's nice to know that it's on the flight path of the airport. Yep. That's a fun fact. Flooding affected the shooting of the episode. Where? In the sand parts? Because that doesn't make any sense. No, I probably, I don't know. Uh, yeah, set who knows? Ben Browder pulled his hamstring while filming this episode, though he kept running until the director yelled cut. There's a, like, I feel like every week there's somebody who injured themselves and then kept going until someone yelled cut. Like Lonnie Tube has done that five times. <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, there's like stuff about how when they were doing the chase scene and the dune buggies, like, Claudia Black was doing her own stunts and jumping on the back of the thing and John or Ben Browder was actually yeah. driving it and you're like this is so dangerous. <laughs> <The show's, laughs> like, why would you put them there? This show's production often feels very like seat of your pants like I don't know we're gonna do it until someone dies. <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Carlton Eastlake the writer suggested that Rigel's injury be in the same place that he was injured in relativity. So he can just heal from stab wounds is that what's going on? I guess. Was he, yeah, because in this episode, he I, that was weird to me, by the way. I thought he, I didn't think he died, but I was like, wait, did they just, like, Roger just got stabbed, like, hardcore stabbed in the chest. And then he's like, oh. Right, exactly. And the rest of the episode, he spent in pain. Yeah, he, like, he falls down. And it's like, was I supposed to think that he just died? But he got stabbed, like, two episodes ago, and he was fine. Right. So, yeah, that was odd. Mm-hmm. John saying to Harvey, for everything there is a season, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, is a callback to season of death. I don't remember that line. I don't either. But I remember okay. season it's of death. Back. Jack the Ancient's reason for coming after John in this episode is for the misuse of the knowledge he gave John in a human reaction. I like this, this fact a lot. But the data that Furlough used from Till the Blood Runs Clear, which was five... Oh, sorry. I'm emphasizing this sentence wrong. Jack the Ancient's reason for coming after John in this episode is for the misuse of the knowledge that he gave John in a human reaction. But the data that Furlough used was from Till the Blood Runs Clear, which was five episodes before John received the wormhole knowledge. Hmm. So that's basically like well, a weird continuity thing. That's a continuity problem, yeah. Uh, episode one, or season one, was like super, remember how like the episodes were very out of order? So that might have just been a weird pacing. Well, they aired out of order, but they weren't written out of order. because. What it was was Furlough got data from that he collected firsthand in his shuttle from a wormhole. Right, by being a spaceman, not by having wormhole stuff shoved into his head. It's different, right. different stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I, uh, yeah, but that's not, that's not necessarily a continuity error because the ancient Jack probably just assumed that John had misused his knowledge when in fact he had misused something that was not given to him by the ancients, but was kind of equivalent to it in some way right um so moving on to uh, episode two pretty much full stop we're talking about icarus abides mm-hmm. which was an ian watson directed episode last one that he directed was um incubator the scorpius episode oh, okay. uh, i feel like this episode was definitely more house style uh but east like script was clearly yeah. written as two parts um of the same story yeah. so mm-hmm. you know that kind of worked out um hmm there's a lot of lines in in the in the illustrated community that i've been like meaning to bring up but basically there was the stuff about the wormhole being like actually a weapon that they didn't think of and then the other one like i want to talk about john the writers wanted us and i don't know how you felt like if you felt like this was successful or not but they wanted us to in this death confirm that this john Crichton, the one that was killed in this episode was the original Uh oh uh why why 
right? That's what I'm saying. There's like lines. Doesn't make any sense. There's lines in here that are very specifically like we wanted people to believe that the one who got cloned was the other one, and this was the original one. It didn't need to matter anymore, but we wanted y'all to think that and be like, oh shit, the real one died. That's crazy. I didn't necessarily feel that. But also, they they went through so much effort to make sure that we knew that twinning wasn't like that that there was no real one right that's yeah i think but it's uh, that so then yeah this line here this is all from david kemper by the way i need the uh, the audience to absolutely totally 100 percent believe that this Crichton was the real one because it was true and as soon as we were sure that they did i could go ahead and kill him so i think it's more a matter of like we wanted you to feel even worse about the death by being like oh shit they killed the og uh, but I felt bad either way. Like, if they kill the other one, I would feel really bad. Um, right. That's like Survivor, and he has the immunity idol or something. And, the, um, sorry, like, the other thing he says here is that the way you were supposed to tell was because this is the one that Aaron loves, and she loves the real Crichton. Uh, again, you're trying to tell us that twinning doesn't change people. Come on. But you're also trying to tell me that, like, she picked one to go with her and also that she's not going to just go back and fall in love with the other one anyway. I continue. Come on. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird. I guess if that debate was still open, I would have thought that, you know, if I was still entertaining the possibility that there was a real one and a clone, I probably would have assumed that this one was the real one. Yeah. Just because of the way, because of the fact that Jack came to this one, that I think is a big indicator. Um, and again, it's, uh, yeah, maybe Aaron loving this one has something to do with it. Um, but it, yeah, it feels like this one is oriented in a place where he's in more of a protagonist role and therefore feel, feels more real than the other one. And then the other guy's kind of in more of the ensemble on Moya. But I just, that was not in my mind anymore. So it's, that's odd that they were gunning for that to happen. Yeah. I uh, just, it seems like they have, I don't know, they had like a different concern there than I did. And also they care a lot about the purity and like realness of Aaron and John's relationship. Like, oh, she loves the real one. She doesn't love, it's like kind of corny rom-com kind of thing. Like even if they yeah, clone exactly. you, I could still tell the difference kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I uh, justify that. It's like, um, if people have at home have, list, have watched the television show, The Legend of Korra, uh, that show ends with two characters holding hands and they're two women, and you're like, oh, this could be a fun friendship. Um, and they're going to go off into the, the sunset. Uh, and then the show creators later were like, no, they were romantically involved. You didn't get it. Like, we wanted you to think that. And you're like, well, okay. You ca- it was kind of fun for me to just think that. But when they confirm stuff like that, it kind of like mm. lightens the excited mood. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. Alas, um, were there any particular moments from Icarus Abides that you really liked? Um, again, I think I really enjoyed Stark and Crace and the Scarron. That was probably the only plot that I actively enjoyed throughout the episode. Because uh, yeah. the Rigel stuff was kind of repetitive. And then Furlough betraying everybody was frustrating. Um, and also, <laughs> the way that Jack the Ancient died was so lame. They spent so much time suggesting that the ancients are like almost omni powerful and like don't ever try to mess with them. They'll destroy you. And then she just gets him like yeah. shot in the back of the head. It's like up oh, John's there, Jack's dead. Yeah. I couldn't decide how I felt about that because on the one hand, it is it is cool that this race that's so hyper intelligent can still be undone 
by getting shot like that. But also, right. it's like he's not—he's not that dumb. He's not dumb. I don't know. It just—it didn't. It felt unceremonious in proportion to how ceremonious John's death was. Right, and her her whole like takeover from there on is like oh, also all the people we've been trying to keep back. I'm letting a bunch of them in, and they're in, and I've taken over. But whoops, they screwed yeah, me over too. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, she just she just gets through everyone very fast, and it's like, why did you spend so much time setting up the defenses if you were just gonna screw everyone over a real quick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Does furlough die in this episode? Oh, I don't she like so. runs she, away. She got away, which I was like, no, shoot her. Just get off. And I know that John's not the kind of character that's going to do that, but it just she didn't get any comeuppance. I will say that we don't see furlough again. Um, that's just a thing that the internet has told us. But mm-hmm. she's out there somewhere to this day, trying to screw some people over and ride a dune buggy out of there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really liked like all the Doom Buggy stuff. Again, I just thought it was really fun, and there was like good music cues and, and just really great action there. Awesome uh, action! The moment where Aaron sets off the mine to blow up the Charid. Oh yeah! And then he's reaching for his gun, and she's like, "Don't do it! Don't do it! Don't do it!" <sighs> you did it. <laughs> she's a good. She's good at combat. She does combat things well. Yeah, and it's just it's really cool that uh, Aaron as a character has become more uh peaceful and compassionate but she still can just kill you yeah 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 she still has that training she'll fuck mm-hmm. a dude up right if she has to Browder mm-hmm. remembers this scene all too well they sent me to a doctor she asked me what happened and i explained that there was this bunker with a bunch of aliens explosions going off and i was carrying a gun in one hand and a grenade in the other i could see the doctor reaching for the psychiatrist number i thought the production had told her i was an actor from a science fiction show waka walk <laughs> i'd love to be in that doctor's office <laughs> yeah that's pretty funny she's just like are you is this hmm <laughs> I would like it's I wonder what tone is funniest for him saying that like if it's very matter of fact or if he has a boyish wonder right those are both really funny because if he's really serious then it's yeah. like oh my god you're bummed you're like unhappy that this happened but then if it's funny it's like yeah I was in a bunker there's some aliens and whatever. yeah I think the like a dad humor that I feel like exemplifies actual real life Ben Browder would be more of a jo- jocular tone nice word thanks Alan uh would be really good i don't need compliments from anyone else i got them i got it taken care of that's like all the big stuff we kind of talked about like there's the doom buggy stuff and there's the uh furlough betraying everyone and uh, jack dies rigel comes back um stark mm-hmm. and Crace take kill oh they like they're like talent do it and he just guns that that scaring down yeah that was great I thought it was cool that they couldn't do it sooner because Talon didn't have like enough bullets or something. They're like, we need to give him more shots because it takes a lot of shots to kill a Scarin, which is another reason why you couldn't have an army of them because they would win everything. That would be like uh, the D&D character that is like boosted a little bit too high and you can't put them in fights because that's not fair. It's the second mm-hmm. week in a row that we've talked about D&D. <laughs> we should play D&D. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, so finally we can talk about the John Crichton death scene. Before we take it yeah. home, where's the? There's a specific line in here that I really like. Yeah, the, so there's a moment in that death scene where it like seems like he's not dead, like he's like closing his eyes and then he like hesitates or something. Yeah, that's the part that Claudia Black in particular was like a, she was like crying, trying to film it and stuff. 
Mm-hmm. So what? there's a lot of great lines in there at the end. She says, I'm very angry. And then we had good times. He says, I wouldn't change it for the world. You made me a better person. I love you. I would have. And then he says, I love you. And she says, I would have gone to Earth, which is calling back to a part earlier in part one where he says, like, hey, if this all works out, uh, I was kind of thinking about taking you with me. And she's like, I was kind of yeah. thinking about going. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, John's going to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. yeah. As soon as they're both like, this sounds great. Good plan. Uh oh. <laughs> no one's going to make it out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. You never got to meet my dad, my real dad. I'm, ne- I'm sorry. I never met your dad. I said, I'm sorry, but a lot of things don't be. I don't want you to go that way. We should give these lines more <laughs> pomp and circumstance. Uh, yeah <laughs> he says uh they say it's a lucky or an unambitious man who goes when he's ready that said scorpius is gone i'm at peace i don't hurt i did good things i'm proud of my life and i'm with you don't worry about me i've never felt better and he flutters his eyes and then goes peacefully what a way to go oh what a way to go man it was a great scene um it was funny i was watching it and then my uh, girlfriend came by like in the middle of it and she's never watched any of the show. So the only scene of Farscape that she's seen is this like final moment with Aaron and John like saying goodbye as he dies. Three seasons of emotional payoff or yeah. emotional build up. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of stuff I'd have to explain to get into this scene. Because um, it's like, you can explain it on one level where it's like she's in love with him and you get that and you see that, which is great. Um, it's really cool that they're able to use all of this kind of like sci-fi maneuvering and complexity and weirdness to get to a moment of such deep, genuine human feeling Yeah, and really bring it to a very simple point. Um, but to get there, you have to be like, okay, so, uh, he, he's wormholes. Um, he's got tech in his head. He got taken out uh, by a bad man. Ancient. Uh, she's like an alien, but it's like different. Uh, yeah. But they're kind of the same. You basically have to explain a ton of the show to fully get that. Uh, like the majority of the stuff going on. Um, here's a, here's a great moment that Claudia Black remarks on. Um, I think, or actually, this is director Ian Watson. I think Claudia does particularly fantastic work on in the deathbed scene. There's great work from Ben too. You don't know when he dies. There's three. There's a three or five second pause when he where he ceases and his eyes are still open. I told him that it would be really tricky for him to die with his eyes open because we'd want to to cut to him and he couldn't blink. We nailed it though. That moment when he actually dies. There's a fantastic cut from Crichton to Aaron, and it's the moment when Claudia sees the light go out in his eyes and lets her grief overtake her. Yeah, I think oh, that man. five seconds of television is the finest work I've ever done on the whole show, which I agree. Yeah, with. definitely. Oh man, that is that was such an amazing cut for sure. And it, that moment too reminded me of the brilliant like cinematic uh, mundanity of the Illyria and Wesley scene from the TV show Angel. Uh, we don't need mm-hmm. to go into it further than that. I think people who have watched the show know what that means. Um, that just like the framing of the scene and the sort of like emotional, like, oh, both of these are like characters that have a ton of backstory that requires explaining, but it's beautiful to see them pass in this way. Right. I, it's also a testament to just the building blocks of filmmaking that when it comes right down to it, you have two close-up shots of people's faces and you're cutting back and forth. Right. And that's your scene. And they're basically just saying some really like typical 
uh, I'm dying kind of lines. He's like, I, you know, I don't have any regrets. I did what I had to do and I love you. And you're like, oh, like it makes you cry because of the skill of the actors and the skill of the editing alone. Yeah. Yeah. John, do you want to help me send off this wonderful pair of episodes with uh, the background information? I sure do, buddy. I surely do. That's what I want to do. Background information. The two-parters subtitles refer to the Greek story of Daedalus and Icarus. Again, I just want to say cool titles. Real cool titles. I didn't pick up on the fact that they are a call and response episode thing until we started recording the first part of this week's episode. I was looking at them and I'm like, shit, Daedalus Daedalus demands and then in response, Icarus abides. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um. And I do, yeah, I I don't know that we dwelled too much on the moment where John chooses to get irradiated, but what, like, just such a cool concept, you know, that you don't have to, there's never any, like, dramatic thing that visually kills him, it's just the knowledge that he's choosing to sacrifice himself. But he never, like, there's never a blaze of glory, you know? Right, he doesn't go out fighting, he goes out, that's why he gets to go out in bed with his partner, is just like... yeah. I chose the way that helps everyone. And even though it's definitely going to kill me, it's going to kill me in a very like sad, slow burn way. Yeah. Cause we, do, we just don't get to see, I feel like we don't get to see TV characters choose their death in that way very often, you know? Yeah. Where he chooses it before he goes into the actual battle. Like the battle doesn't kill him at all. It's just the fact that the case was popped open and he had to close it. It's yeah. It's something profound about that i can't pinpoint it's such it's such a cool way to engineer a character death yeah um the race between the dune buggies was originally scripted as battle between starfighters before it was decided that more of the action should take place on the planet claudia black expressed relief that ben browder had experienced driving rally cars as she was standing on the dune buggy while it was being driven close to 100 kilometers per hour here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go to google and type in speed. <laughs> I knew you were going to do it. Conversion. Give it a second, folks. Uh, and if I type in 100 into kilometers per hour, you want to know how many miles per hour that is? Uh-huh. 62. That's very fast. That's highway speed. Yes. And she was standing in that dune buggy. It was crazy. Um, 62.137. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Great sequence. Really great choice to not do a stupid, dumb CG Starfighter fight. And do dune Yeah, this... this... If you're gonna do Narshada, then you gotta have. I don't. I'm not. I don't want to know what it's actually called. I'm gonna call it Narshada until the end. Uh, <laughs> if you're gonna do that planet, you gotta do stuff with the sand. That's like the whole point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fun exchange here on the Farscape wiki in terms of just like typographically how it's laid out. Yeah, so I'm yeah. Explain it. So all of these are in bullet points, right? And this one says, when he died as Jack the Ancient, it was Kent McCord's first on-camera death since his role in 1965's The Young Warriors. And then there's an italicized portion that is not in the bullet points, but it's like right below and breaks this all up weirdly. And it says, in actuality, McCord had an on-screen death the second season, 21 Jump Street episode, Chapel of Love in 1988. It's like, okay, you can put that... You can change the fact or something. I love the moments when you're reading a wiki and you see two people arguing, basically. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if you really think about Actually, it. Actually, the yeah. guy above me is an idiot. Anyways. There's a lot of that on the Buffy wiki. Yeah. Yeah. Lonnie Tupu injured his hand while playing Crace. So here's another one. Like what I was just talking about. 
uh, injured his hand while playing Crace Blind, but continued until the scene was complete before having it treated. Ian Watson describes the five seconds. So you said this, right? The five seconds where Aaron realizes Crichton has died as the finest work he work on. The, sorry, has died as the finest he worked on in the show's first three seasons. It's a weird way to word that, but yes, yeah. Uh, Crichton's death was inspired. Uh, this is something you were alluding to by the nuclear testing program of the 1940s. Very few people see the blue flash of nuclear explosion with naked eyes and survive. His final line, I've never felt better, were a tribute to the final words of Douglas Fairbanks. I recommend people fall down the Wikipedia hole for Douglas Fairbanks because he was a fascinating individual. And if they haven't already written a book about him, then they should. Because he was the person who was like, oh, this might, hmm, I think we've created something really bad. <laughs> He's at least one of the people that thought that, obviously. Yeah. The part where John tells Rigel he can't have his stuff is a reference to Premiere and to everything Rigel ever does. This marks the first dying person whom Stark crosses over since Jelena in The Hidden Memory. That's cool. Yep. I wonder if we're ever going to get a direct explanation of the light thing on his face. Oh, maybe, I doubt maybe it. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. This episode breaks the pattern established during season three of alternating between the two crews. Yeah. Mm. I was looking at the picture for the next one and it's another... It's a, like, we're just putting them back together episode. It's not an explicitly Moya episode. The next one? Yes, I believe so. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I read most of the stuff from the Illustrated Companion. Uh, my favorite line of the episode was Stark after realizing that, I think this is after he realizes that Crichton is dead, he says, I have no prayer for that. Or actually, is that hmm. why he says that? He says that at one point and it was a great line, is what I'm getting at. There you go. Oh, that was... The oh, what do I got here? Oh, is this a message? Huh. A message. Is it? It says, "Turn to Planet Netflix. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars." Huh. That, that's a weirdly mixed metaphor of a message. Yeah, it is. It really, it's almost like oh. someone improv that. Hey, it's Planet Netflix. <laughs> my friend, my dude, my lovely partner in crime. Let's uh, give the people what they want. Let's read the Netflix summaries of the next two episodes that we're going to be discussing on the next Escape Chats. Yeah, they want these summaries. Next week, we are watching two episodes of Farscape. Phew. Three was yeah, a lot. Right? Whew, it is a lot. We might have to do it again. Yes. At the end. Anyway, the first one is season three, episode 16, Revenging Angel. Dargo and Crichton's fight ends with Crichton being knocked out cold. The Scorpius clone in Crichton's mind tries to convince him to exact revenge. Also, this is the Looney Tunes episode. Yep. That. Oh, that's the cartoon episode? Yeah, I think so. Fuck yeah. Um, that's a great name for it also. A revenging angel is just a good thing. Mm -hmm. Then, season three, episode 17, The Choice. Grieving for Crichton, Aaron meets a man who claims to be her father and puts her in touch with a creature who's able to contact the dead Crichton. All right. We're going to cry well, this week. Okay. Yeah, no, dude, so you know too. what it is? It's going to be another like, ha ha, revenging angel, funny, wacky, spooky. And then The Choice is going to break us in half. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me scroll past this gigantic Kimmy Schmidt advertisement. Whoops, free ads from us. Uh, and I'll tell you that um, that was Planet Netflix. And as we soar away, we enter the land of plugs. Pluggy plug plugs. You can email Scape Chats with your questions, comments, and concerns at scapechats at gmail.com. You can also follow at Scape Chats on Twitter, where we post episodes and talk to the fans. And, uh... 
Magellan can be found at twitter.com slash just the fluke spelled j-u-s-t-a-p-f-l-u-k-e he doesn't tweet but he's wonderful and he likes to see the numbers on his social media accounts go up i tweet a little bit oh he I've tweets a little bit yeah yeah and also it's just nice to make the numbers go up so make his numbers go up make him feel happy yeah i love my numbers toss him a follow he'll chit chat with you about the show or whatever yeah hey Magellan, where where can i be found on twitter oh that's a good question you can be found at alan ibrahim is that right yes okay Great. You can find Alan on Twitter at Alan Ibrahim. That's A-L-L-E-N-I-B-R-A-H-I-M. Wow. Look at you doing it right. Yeah, I've known you for a while. (laughs) Some might say too long. (laughs) Uh, Nah, I love you, man. Uh, And thank you. you, Thank you for being on another one of these. And you know what? Thank you for being on another one of these. Sounds like every week you're the guest. And I can any week now take you off. And that's impossible because... I think it's good. I think you always want to express that you care about the people you care about and you're thankful for them. And I feel and so thank thank you for being on another one of these. You're welcome. I do my best. We we really try to get these out in a timely, nice manner, and it's always a good John just retweeted something, folks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways, um, so you can check out that cool stuff at his Twitter account. Uh, but yeah, we we just we try to make this a thing that makes us happy and it makes all of y'all happy. And we love you very much. With that in mind, this has been Scape Chats, and let's get the frell out of here.